So we do something that we like. I eat a cake. I watch a favorite video. I do something fun. I get this rush of dopamine. I a spike. I feel awesome. But what happens is what goes up must come down. So then our dopamine crashes. And it doesn't crash back down to normal. It goes below normal. Welcome everyone to Roadmap to Joy. I'm Jake Sparks, the Embark Treatment Director, and I am excited to be here today. I am a marriage and family therapist with over 15 years of experience working with adolescents and their parents. And I'd love to go over some questions specifically related to mental health and summertime. So we think of summertime as this really lovely, enjoyable time, school's out, stress-free, let's go party. Um, but we know a lot of families actually struggle uh, a lot more, and a lot of our adolescents actually increase their symptomology around areas of mental health. So one of the things I'd love to frame this discussion, I would actually like to focus on mental health versus mental illness. Uh, and the reason is what we're talking about today really impacts everyone and it impacts all of our adolescents. So as we go through, what are some of the barriers? What are some of the ways that you can protect yourself or your teens in your house? I want you to think about uh, ways that we can minimize uh, minimize risk. So there were inherent in life, there's always risk, but hopefully you'll have some tools and resources to minimize the disruption or the risk of disruption that having school out for three or four months in the summertime um, causes. So we're going to talk about mental health as it relates to summer. Uh, I'm going to answer some questions, and then I have three big points that are always there, but we really need to tackle and understand these three big related issues related to mental health. So first question is, is it common for teens or kids to struggle with their mental health during the summer? And the answer is yes, that is common. It's also common for kids to struggle when it's not summer. Um, every fall we talk, we say, well, it's back to school, more stress, more anxiety, mental health issues are going to increase. And that's true. That happens every fall and also happens when school's out. So what we found is that depending on who you are or who your child is and your situation, your mental health needs might increase or decrease as the changes come. Here are some specific risks, though, to be aware of, specifically associated with summertime. So there is a thing called seasonal affective disorder, which is an increase of symptomology that look very similar to depression. Now, we're typically seeing this in the wintertime as uh it's cold, the sunlight is low, people don't get as much vitamin D, and we see these depressions that can occur. Um, there is evidence of it happening in summertime as well, and we'll talk a lot more about circadian rhythms and schedules and all of that, why that might be. However, we also know that when we are seeing uh, summertime seasonal affective disorder, it's probably also related to shifts in scheduling, in timing, in support, in access to uh, resources and social engagement. So, so here's some of the reasons um, that we know clients, kids, families, even parents might struggle in the summer. So first one, it's a really big disruption to your routine. So if you do school nine months a year, then all of a sudden, great, do nothing. Just hang out. You have nowhere to go, nowhere to be. That sounds awesome on its, on its face, but it's a really big disruption to their schedule. Uh, that can be really hard to tolerate. We tend to minimize the disruption and actually the difficulty that that is, uh, particularly for our kids and adolescents, especially if they have um, any mental health issues or propensities or um, ex uh, history of mental health symptoms. Medication often gets disrupted. Um, sometimes ADHD medication or other types of medications are prescribed for school year, and sometimes uh, psychiatrists or medical doctors recommend to come off of them. And while we should always listen to what our healthcare provider says, always do ask your pediatrician, ask your psychiatrist what's best for you. Um, however, know that whatever that recommendation is might be a stressor. It might be a healthy stressor, but again, it might be adding to the risk of mental health issues. Um, reduced sleep is a big one. 
uh, which you would think it's not because they have more time and there's not school. We're not getting up. But we know that uh, sleep is really closely tied to our mental health, and all of that goes out the window, all of the scheduling. So that can be really difficult. Uh, A lot of kids struggle with isolation. So think of how many kids have friends and have peers at school, but maybe they don't quite hang out with people at home. So when they're not going to school, or how much are they seeing and interacting with other people um, in a, in a face to face environment? We know that that can decrease throughout the summer um, and actually increase feelings of loneliness and isolation. So that leads to uh, sometimes more screen time, social media. We're gonna dive into that in a really detailed way. Um, but if they're not doing school, that time's being filled with something else. And then lastly is is just what do they do with themselves? And it's hard for each of us to know what to do with ourselves. So those are some risk factors that might increase someone's mental health issues. So you need to be thinking about those are all existing. How can you minimize those risks in your family or with yourself? So uh, we get asked a lot, well, what are some signs that I might need to know to, to know if my child needs extra support or maybe even therapy? Um, So please do not say, my kid's really depressed and really anxious, but school's almost over. Let's just wait till school ends and maybe these problems will go away. They're probably not going to go away on their own. Now, it is true when our stress level exceeds our ability to cope, we can experience mental health issues. So if school goes down and it decreases the stress, maybe that child can now cope better and they might become less symptomatic over the summer. Great. Take the win when you can. However, if no growth and development happens, what's going to happen when that same level of stress gets thrown back in their face in the fall? Are they going to be better prepared? Probably not. So as a therapist, I'm always saying the best time to go to therapy is when when you're already regulated and coping. When you're in crisis, it's really hard for me to do effective therapy with you. I have to do a lot of work. You have to do a lot of work to get out of that crisis so we can get back on a path towards long-term health and healing. So if your child or yourself are struggling during the school year, don't assume summer's going to fix it all. I would encourage you to take the summer, take the relaxation and the break as a time for self-growth and self-improvement so that you are better prepared come fall, that you actually can cope and tolerate a higher level of stress. I get asked, is it a good idea to change medications? We talked on that briefly. It may or may not be. Please speak with your medical provider, your pediatrician, your doctor, and and make sure they understand the, the symptomology that's happening and how that symptomology changes throughout the summer. Again, there's so much disruption, so much uh, changes that while those sometimes are welcome disruptions, uh, we can't underestimate how how difficult it might be to tolerate um, for one of our students or our children or someone in our family. I want to give you some really tangible things to look out for and to be aware of. So school, as it separates, and now we're into the throes of summer, there's three, three main things that I want to suggest we think about today. So I want to dive into these a little bit more specifically. So the first one I've mentioned is sleep. Sleep. Now, each human knows that we need a certain amount of sleep. We all know that, and yet we know that most of us don't get it. We know that it's the best thing for us, but for whatever reason, it's like I will do anything to sleep eight hours a night except for go to bed eight hours before I need to wake up. It should be so easy, but it's not. So teens are particularly struggle with this. So the average amount of sleep that teenagers get is between seven and seven and a half hours of sleep, that's the average. And we know empirically teenagers and adolescents need nine and a quarter hours of sleep each night. Okay, um, They're probably not getting that. Summertime comes, you'd think they'd get it more, but the research shows they actually don't. As a result, most adolescents are chronically sleep deprived and sleep deprivation can have a horrendous impact on your own mental health. Um, it impacts your mood negatively. So um, moody, irritable, cranky. So you feel a greater intensity of emotion and then an ability to regulate and behave appropriately in social contexts with that emotion is also decreased. 
So it's kind of a double whammy. We feel worse and our ability to manage our emotion is also decreased. So then we start to see negative behaviors, disruptive behaviors. Um, we know chronic sleep impacts our ability to think. So think of how important um, cause and effect are to work now, to relax later, that planning. Um, all of those things r are really diminished. When we're sleep deprived, we end up thinking, what do I want right now? And I just want it right now. We don't really think about what's healthy and good for us in the long term. Um, and then there are other things as, as our teens and adolescents go out and engage in the world. Are they more prone to um, drowsy driving or more prone to make unhealthy decisions with peers and with friends and to be in places that they maybe otherwise wouldn't make? But again, we're talking about risk factors. So when we're sleep deprived, we're increasing a risk factor. Um, that creates an environment where mental health issues are more likely to arise. So be thoughtful and intentional about your sleep or about your child's sleep. Now, it's totally normal for adolescents to want to stay up later and sleep in longer. That's actually, it's called delays phase sleep preference, um, and it's developmentally normal and necessary for teens and adolescents. If you're a parent, you did that too. So what it's important to remember is that just because they're programmed to want to stay in bed longer and stay up later, that might not always be what's, what's best for them. It's really important to maintain a sleep schedule. Okay? Uh, so there's a couple ways that you can do this. There's a, 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 a researcher out of Stanford University that has a, a, a famous podcast um, he's done a great job of disseminating information. His name's Dr. Andrew Huberman. He's a professor of biology and ophthalmology, and he's made it his life's mission to talk about the power of sleep and circadian rhythms and how they can govern our lives. So here's a protocol that he recommends. You can go and learn more. Um, but he talks a lot about the power of light to reset our circadian rhythm. So what happens is if a, a, a teenager stays up till 11, 12, 1, 2 in the morning, and then they sleep in all till 10, 11, 12, 1, 2 in the afternoon, what they're actually doing is they might get more sleep, but their circadian rhythm um, is not in balance. So biologically, they're not, uh, those rhythms and those patterns, it's actually quite disruptive. And it's really hard for our bodies to tolerate. There's been lots of studies on shift workers, uh, graveyard workers. Um, we know that that is associated with more stress, obesity, mental health issues, cognitive impairments. There's a whole laundry list of symptoms that come from having your circadian rhythm thrown out of whack. So please focus on getting sleep. One thing that you can do, this is not... Um, it, it takes a little bit of work, but I promise it's worth it. So if you are struggling or your child is struggling with their circadian rhythm, a couple of things you can do. So first thing in the morning, it's imperative that you get some sunlight into your eyes. Okay, so if you can wake up and go out, don't stare at the sun. Please don't do that. But if you can get some of that morning sunlight into your eyes, some of the blues, some of the oranges, some of the, the yellows as it comes out the beginning of the day, what that does is that sends a signal inside of your body that 16 hours from now, I'm going to need to go to sleep. So what you do in the morning will set your body up biologically to sleep in 16 hours. Okay. Now you can get this double effect if you do a similar thing at twilight. So go out, spend 10, 15, maybe 30 minutes at sunset, get that twilight sun into your eyes. That will send another signal to your body of, I need to get ready for bed. In a, I'm, it's time to start producing melatonin and get these physiological processes in line. So these are great ways to make sure your circadian rhythm is on track so that biologically you are not thrown off by the, by the scheduling. If you can do this for two or three days in a row, morning sunlight, 10, 15, 30 minutes, evening twilight sunlight, 10, 15, 30 minutes, that will have a giant impact on your ability to fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up in the morning actually feeling refreshed. Isn't that awesome? A couple other things that you need to be aware of. If you need to take a nap, I would suggest take it in the early afternoons which means your wake-up time probably needs to also be earlier. So if you sleep till 11, you're probably not going to be ready for your 
uh, 12 o'clock nap, right? So be really thoughtful and mindful of that. Um, the other thing we know is the power of light, as I just said, and screens and noise. So I know a lot of people that fall asleep with the lights on, with the TV on, um, with the noise blaring. The research is very clear. While those things uh, might not disrupt your sleep, you might feel like, I got a full night's sleep. I didn't wake up at all. The TV was on all night. What we know is that sleep is much less powerful and effective for you. So sleep with the lights on is not good. Sleep with the sound on is not good. So I would encourage you to not do it. Try to not be the, the person that falls asleep at 2 a.m. with the TV on. You're not going to get good restful sleep. You're not going to wake up feeling good. And it's going to just perpetuate the same dysfunctional cycle. Uh, avoid caffeine, smoking, drugs, alcohol, particularly in the evening. All of those things keep you awake. And then if you have any specific sleep um, diagnoses, apnea, insomnia, these skills, these tips and tricks probably aren't going to cure those things. But again, it's about minimizing your risk. So if you can be thoughtful, and I'll speak directly to any adolescents out there, this is not the funnest thing you'll ever do. However, Part of your growth and journey from being a child to a human is figuring out how to take care of yourself. So these are some really clear ways you can manage your sleep to where you can feel rested and ready to go the next day. Okay, so summer, think about sleep. Super important for your mental health. The second issue that comes up all the time is screens. Now, Screens, TV screens, cell phones, social media, all of that. This is not going to be an exhaustive review of what you can and should not do, all those things. We could do a whole episode just about that. Um, but wanted to give you some nuggets. Now, uh, it's really easy to demonize electron, uh, technology, electronics. That is not what this is about. I, I'm a full believer that screens are here to stay, and it's important for us to teach ourselves and our families our teens specifically, how to use these tools and resources in a way that's valuable for them. Uh, we can go back into the years 17, 1800s, where at the time parents were really concerned about their children reading books. And they're like, the kids are reading too many books. It's going to rot their brains, which sounds crazy to us today. Well, that'd be awesome if our kids read more books. We would love that. But basically, every generation has been fearful of all oh, this new technology is going to break society. That's not what I'm saying. Screens are good. The connections are good. There's lots of good, valuable tools, and they're here to stay. Our job is to how do we figure out how to use those to our advantage and, again, mitigate the risks that they will have to our own mental health. And the risks are many. So here's a couple of details for you. Think about if this applies to you or to your child. So the average teen spends 8 hours and 40 minutes looking at screens each day not including schoolwork. So they go to school, they do their thing, and then the rest of their free time, eight hours and 40 minutes of that free time is spent with their face in a screen. Um, so that's about half of their waking hours. Okay. Now, before you feel like I'm bashing teens, kids these days with their phones, adults aren't much better. Okay, so let's be honest about ourselves. None of us are good, and as a society, we're not good. And it's really difficult for parents who are also not good at managing this um, to teach their, their, their children. But this is something we need to be aware of. So eight hours, 40 minutes is what the average teen is spending on their phones, on a screen, outside of schoolwork. There is some difference about what people are doing. Teenagers spend more than three hours a day of that time watching TV or videos. Um, we know that there's some relationship between is that like YouTube, Netflix, or is it social media? Those are treated a little bit differently. Um, one thing that the research is very clear that kids aren't doing on their phones is reading. Most of us are not struggling with our addiction to the Kindle app. Um, you might have a great book that you know and love, um, but most that's not the thing that hooks most of us. So here's some data from uh, Common Sense Media puts out a report almost annually about the state of media and adolescence and consumption. So here's some stats. So only 34% of teens say that they enjoy social media a lot. So two-thirds of teens are like, yeah, I don't love it. It's fine. It's okay. 
However, 95% say they use it daily, and more than a third say they use social media almost constantly. So I see this a lot of the times in my practice where um, I'll have uh, clients come in and they'll say, I'm on my phone. I don't like love Snapchat. TikTok's not my favorite thing in the world. I don't need to be on Instagram. Um, but there is a sense of impeding. Um, there's this fear of missing out, of course, but it's also where they connect with people. And there's a sense of, I'm worried someone's going to send me a message and I'm not going to be there. I don't want to let anyone down. And there's this, all this social pressure to just exist. And in, in my head, I've always thought about if I, you know, I, I have a job, I would not say email is a hobby of mine. I don't really enjoy checking email, but I do it a, a lot. And even on the weekends when I like, I'm not working this weekend, I'll check my email. And if other people are emailing me, and work's still happening, you know I'm going to jump in and do email. Now think about if you had eight different email accounts all in their own app and different people contacted you in different emails that you all had to check. So there's this pressure with social media that most, the vast majority of teens say, I actually don't love it, but I feel like I have to participate in it. So social media in that sense is, 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 a risk factor because it's one more obligation, one more thing to do. It's not actually relieving or helping us to escape. It's we're just feel like we're caught up. Now, there's some great things about it is that it can help us to connect. And we do know, especially from populations that have been marginalized, um, it's a great way to find a community that's accepting and accommodating and, and one that you can feel belonging to. So it's not all bad. Most of it, I would say, is actually really good. However, you need to be intentional about protecting yourself from the risk factors. Um, so adolescents, so hear this, adolescents who spend more than three hours a day on social media face double the risk of poor mental health system symptoms. So if you spend more than three hours a day on social media alone, that doesn't include Netflix or all of that, so it's just social media, um, you're twice as likely to be anxious, depressed, or have other mental health issues. Now, here's the kicker. How much are people typically spending on social media? The average client, average teen is spending over three and a half hours a day. Okay, so that's, that's the data. So over three hours, you're doubling your risk. And most of, all, most of us adults, too, are more than double. Okay, so as a society... You can imagine how that spells out. We do know that greater social media use predicts poor sleep, which we already talked about. It predicts online harassment, poor body, poor body image, low self-esteem, and higher depressive symptoms. So we can see how much social media someone uses, and we can predict how likely they are to um, have symptoms in those areas. And this is this bad news. I sorry to have to say this. This is particularly true for young women compared to young men, okay? We'll, won't get in, there's lots of reasons probably why for that, but that's just what you need to be aware of. Um, social media is going to have a bigger impact, the data says, on young women than it will on young men. Young women who struggle, who are struggling socially offline are three to four times as likely as others to report daily negative social experiences online. So let me say that again. If you're struggling with mental health issues in your everyday life, you are more likely, three to four times more likely, to experience negative um, content that will impact your mental health in a negative way. So it's almost the way these algorithms work. If you are mentally distressed, um, anxiety, depression, other symptoms, and you hop online, it is literally more dangerous for you than for the, a person who's not distressed. Okay, we know... Those with moderate or severe depressive symptoms, roughly 7 in 10 who use Instagram and TikTok say they come across problematic suicide-related content at least monthly on these platforms. So among those who are most distressed are the ones that are most likely to see the distressing content. Okay, So that's why, again, I would encourage us to have this risk factor. How do we protect? The number one way we can protect is to limit and decrease our exposure. I'm not saying throw your phones in the toilet and never look at it again. I know that's not realistic. But can you 
understand where you are mentally, emotionally, understand developmentally where your child is and provide an environment that is most attuned and developmentally appropriate for them in the, their current state. Okay. Um, that's what parent caregivers have to do. So you have to be able to say, here's my child. If they're having mental health issues, that probably means you need to decrease their exposure to these really detrimental impacts. Probably can't minimize it. You can't, can't forget about it. But if you can go from three and a half hours a day to one hour a day, that would be, we know if you can do less than one hour, your outcomes are so much better. Now, with social media, it's really hard because no one just says, oh, it's one o'clock. Time for my social media hour. Here I go. It's something you do in little bite-sized chunks all throughout the day. I'm on Instagram for two minutes, and I pop over to this, and I eat dinner, and then I do this, and it's just all over. So it's really difficult. Um, so here's some things that caregivers can do. You can create what I would say is a family media plan, family technology plan. And this is not something that you can just say, kids, you have to do this, but parents don't. You all should do it together, okay? Because as we've said, parents, adults aren't any better at the social media thing than kids. Um, so I would actually suggest, call me old-fashioned, that you do. You have a structured set-a-point time where you are going to do all your social mediaing in one setting, in one place, and you have some supports nearby and around, um, and you say, all right, from two to three, is that's when I'm going to check all my social media stuff, tell hi to everyone, do what I need to do. And that way, if I come across something or I need support, I can go talk to my mom or my dad or get help in whatever way I need to. So create a social media plan that everyone follows. Uh, I highly suggest you create spaces in your house that are technology free and that you dedicate a time to be unreachable. Okay, so the research is very clear. If you can have an hour a day without your phone where no one can call you, no one can text you, there's nothing that's going to buzz, your mental health dramatically improves. So maybe this is go for a jog, uh, do, do yoga, leave your phone at home when you go and check the mail. Well, I don't, whatever you do, look for opportunities to be away from your technology. Model responsible social media behavior. So this is one thing that I have found. Um, I... As, as a clinician, I've worked with a lot of victims of bullying, whether in person or uh, virtual social media bullying. A, a lot. That's happened. It's rampant. You're going to come across it, and it's going to be destructive. So first, limit your access. But the thing I've never come across is a client that has come in and says, I am a bully. I am a virtual bully. I bully people on social media. I haven't ever really seen that person come into my office. And, and the reason why is that the vast majority of those bullies don't perceive themselves as bullies. Oftentimes, they perceive themselves as victims. And when we feel as we are victims or we are hurt, we will reach out and try to find some power, try to find some influence and hurt other people. So the message is um, just like in the real world, but for online virtually, it's expanded tenfold. Um, there's hurt people out there and they do not great healthy things sometimes. And we are the same. That's a, a natural human reaction. So model responsible social media behavior um, and don't participate. Block, limit, get out of those toxic environments uh, virtually. And then lastly, this is really hard to do, but would be really great work. This is what parents can do. Work with other parents to create shared norms. So there's so much social pressure. And with the, the data is very clear. Teens do not want the social pressure. They don't want to be there. They don't want to have to have all this stuff to manage. Now they do like the videos and they want to have the privileges. And of course they want to have the freedom, but the actual experience of it is really distressing and difficult. So Work with other parents to create shared norms about what's appropriate for your group, your child's group of friends. What are they doing? The more we can be uh, utilizing uh, social supports in positive, uplifting ways, the, the better we can be. Uh, it's often said that we become who our peers are, and that's probably there's some truth to that. How our children's friends, how they project into the world, how they show up, um, they're mental and emotional health, how vulnerable they are with their parents, all of those things come out in friendships. So it's all really interrelated. Here's my, my last tip. We talked about tech-free zones. 
um, I highly encourage you to leave your phone outside of your bedroom. Everyone in your family. Okay, if you're asking your teens to do it, you got to do it too. So the research is also really clear. Having your phone in your bedroom negatively impacts your sleep. Now, someone out there is going to say, but Jake, I don't even look at my phone. I plug it in my nightstand. I sleep all night. I don't look at it till morning. I believe you and you're wrong. It impacts your sleep negatively. And what we have found through the research is that just having the phone in the room, it, it causes you to exert psychological energy to not look at it. So even though you're resting um, and you're not looking at it, it's causing, uh, in order to do that, it takes energy um, so you don't actually sleep very well. So that's why we have to set up in our spaces places where it's like you don't have to use any energy. You're not going to use your phone. You couldn't use it if you even wanted to. I have to go walk downstairs and into the kitchen and unplug it. Um, so there's some relief that comes from that. Now, if I go up to an adolescent and, or probably anyone and actually, and I say, hey, give me your phone for 60 minutes or give me your phone for the night, that is not a comforting, we want it by us. We have it with us all of the time. I am suggesting we don't. Let yourself relax and to know nothing's going to ring or buzz and that you have to exert no energy um, into not looking at it. Okay, here's what adolescents can do in regards to their own social media. Oh, and I do want to say, uh, I, this comes a, a, up all the time for parents, is they'll say, my, my child is using her phone inappropriately. And what are we going to do? And how do I make her follow the rules? And she's going to have these boundaries. And always what I say is, would you give your eight-year-old child the keys to the car? And they say, well, no, uh, of course I wouldn't. And I say, well, but you gave her the phone. You gave it to her. You bought it. You paid for it. You pay the phone bill. Um, you, you see her? You More likely than not, you gave her the phone. And if she is misbehaving or not handling it appropriately, what that means is she's not developmentally ready for the thing you gave her. We wouldn't give an eight-year-old the keys to the car because they're not developmentally ready to drive. And if we did and that eight-year-old crashes the car, that's not on the eight-year-old, that's on the parent for expecting this child to do something they are not developmentally ready to do. So if misuse comes up, now misuse could be defined how your family's plan determines that, but maybe they accessing dangerous or inappropriate content or being mean or rude and bullying other people online or using it just appropriately but just 24-7, don't know how to turn it off. All of those things, I invite you as caregivers to see those as your problem and your, your child is asking, is saying, I'm not managing this. I need your help to manage it for me. That doesn't mean take it away. doesn't mean throw the phone in the toilet. You can never see it again. I'm not saying be pejorative and punitive and punish them. I'm not saying that. I am saying they need help and support and they're looking to you for that help and support. They might not want the help and support, but that's what they are saying they need. So you're never allowed to blame your child for their electronic misuse. Okay? That's on us as caregivers to assess what developmentally they're ready for, and we're going to get it wrong, and that's why we have to correct. Okay, here's what adolescents can do. So adolescents out there, listen up. This is really glamorous stuff to talk about, I know, but part of being an adult is having to figure out how to do the right thing and manage this. Now, I will also say, teens, if you want control and manage to manage this, then do it. Right? If you don't want your parents policing it for you, it's on you to show them they don't need to police and manage this. Okay. So number one thing teens can do is they can ask for help. We actually know depending on how your family and communication, we know that when teens, adolescents feel like I can go to mom and dad and show show them the negative interaction I'm having show them the problem, they actually feel so much better about their social media use, both parents and the student and the client and the child. So ask for help. Create boundaries and separation between online and offline activities. So I suggest no screens for 60 minutes before bed. I suggest strongly no screens in bedrooms and no screens at mealtimes or other times of connection. So have some time each day where you're just going to take a screen fast. And I'm not doing screens right now. You, you need it, okay? It is 
a fun thing, but it's a pressure and a weight that you can't carry 24-7. You will become exhausted. Set it down, separate every day sometime to just, no, I'm unreachable. Um, develop proactive strategies. So there's tons of apps that can track your time, track what your activity um, that can say you spent this amount of time on social media, this amount of time on YouTube, this amount of time. on. So they can tell you that. Um, be thoughtful about a plan. So don't just use your phone and be like, I guess I use what I use. Identify for yourself based where I'm at today, my mental health, emotional health, my time, responsibilities, everything. How much time can I devote towards TikTok? Actually, my life right now, I get 30 minutes a day. And if I'm spending more than that, it means I'm wasting time and I'm not doing other things. Great. So be intentional and make a plan and then track it and see and you can adjust. This plan will change depending on developmentally, mentally, emotionally, how your stress levels, this plan will need to change and fluctuate. But again, I will say the more mentally distressed you are, more anxiety and uh, depression symptoms, the more dangerous social media is for you. And sorry, that's the way it is, but that's what the data bears out pretty clearly. Be nice to each other. Don't be the bully. Uh, be careful about what you share and look for opportunities to connect with communities that fill and uplift you and guide you in the direction the human you want to be. Okay, so that's a lot of data and information on screens. I want to share uh, one, of my, one of my favorite studies uh, that talked about sleep the implications for both sleep and screens is they asked participants to memorize a series of numbers, like digit numbers. And some had two digits, so like 23, 45, and some had a five, six, or seven, or eight digit number. Okay, so varying degrees. And they had a big long hall. So they told them the, num the number, the end of the hall, and they said, walk to the end other end of the hall and see if you can remember the number. So participants didn't. They walk all the way to the end, and they tell the researcher at the end of the hall their number, and some remembered it and some didn't. That's fine. And the researcher said, okay, great, thank you. Give me a few minutes to tabulate the scores. Have a seat and wait. And while you're waiting, feel free to grab a snack. And next to the researcher was a table, and the table had um, some fruit, a couple of some assortment of fruit cups that they could grab, and it also had a plate of brownies, or it might have been cake. I don't remember if it was cake or brownies. So they said, grab a snack and sit down. And then the, the real study was to see, did people choose the fruit or did they choose the cake? And what the study fascinatingly showed is those individuals that had to memorize a longer number were significantly more likely to choose the cake. So the implication of this is they had to use the internal resources, some energy, some psychological energy to memorize that number such that their uh, ability to regulate and to manage and to think ahead um, was decreased. So most people, when they get to a place, say, ah, you know, I can't live a life where I just eat every single cake I see. Let me have the banana. Um, that's what they found is the norm typically. Um, but those who had to memorize a longer number actually did not have the same ability to say no to the obviously more delicious cake. Um, and so they just jumped in. So this is where your sleep and your social media exist. If you are not sleeping well, your ability to track and to manage and to be intentional and thoughtful about your use is going to significantly decrease. And the worst part is, is once that decreases and once you're on this path doing more high-risk activities, you have to actually exert more energy and you become more tired. And that is a lot of ways of how these mental health issues really uh, uh, cultivate in these petri dishes of I'm overtired, I'm under-resourced, I have more threats and um, access to dangerous material, and so then I get more tired and more anxious, and then I get more access to this dangerous material. Does that make sense? So it just kind of over goes over and over again. So watch out for that. Okay, so we've covered summer, we've covered sleep in the summer, we've covered social media use in the summer. The last one we're going to talk about today, and it's the one everyone feels and everyone forgets about, and that is boredom. Okay, so this is tough. So parents, if you're listening, uh, you can go ahead and say it now. Uh, I've got myself, I have four kids under the age of seven. I haven't been bored in eight years. 
I I would love a weekend to just be bored. Oh man, how lucky would it be to just sit back and be bored? What we underestimate is actually how difficult and psychologically taxing being bored is. How negative of an experience being bored actually is. One other study done in 2016, um, they had three groups of people come into this room and they played them video clips. So one group got a sad video. Another group got what was called a monotonous video. And then one group got just a generic kind of neutral. Wasn't too sad, wasn't too happy, wasn't too boring. Um, just another video. So as they watched these three groups, each participant was hooked up to uh, a way to give, them, give themselves an electronic shock. So you watch the video, you're hooked up to these electrodes, you can push a button and shock yourself. So they just wanted to see, what would people do? And turns out those who were in the sad video group and those who were in the neutral video group didn't have that much interest in shocking themselves. Like, I don't need to do that. Those who were in the monotonous video group had a dramatic increase in their shocks and in the intensity of the shocks. So the implication of this is shocking yourself literally is superior to being bored. Right? That's, I, being bored is the worst thing. I will cause physical pain on myself if that keeps me from having to be bored. Um, and they also tied this to um, those who had struggled with non-suicidal self-injury in the past. And they found the, the participants in the sad group and in the uh, neutral group, even if they'd struggled with self-harm or that in the past, wasn't an issue. But in the monotony group, it was. So that suggests that sometimes it's really not about trying to cope with the emotion other than the emotion of boredom. Now, no one ever tells you that you need to be ready. You need to be better at being bored. That's, we just assume if you're bored, that's a luxury. Um, and adults are really good at just being really pejorative and blaming kids and being bored. And we do something ineffective, get a job. Um, but we need to understand how disruptive it is. Uh, okay. So in order to understand this, we do need to understand just a little bit of brain science. So don't check out. Stay with me. I promise uh, we are understanding much more now about the dopamine system. Okay, how dopamine is a chemical in your brain and it feels good. It's a little more complicated than that, but it helps you feel good and it helps you feel so good that it also helps drive your behavior. So dopamine comes not after you've done something, but it comes to get you to do something. So what happens is, what the dopamine, it's tied to pleasure, but it also has this pain comp component. So we do something that we like. I eat a cake. I watch a favorite video. I do something fun. I get this rush of dopamine. I a spike. I feel awesome. But what happens is what goes up must come down. So then our dopamine crashes. And it doesn't crash back down to normal. It goes below normal. So that's the pain. So any time you have this dopamine rush, you get this pain. Now, what we are used to doing is I feel this dopamine rush and then I start to come down. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to come down. Let me just get another hit of dopamine. And the electronics, the, our phone screens, did people like? What's this new video? Uh, TikTok, you can watch 800 different videos on all different topics and it's constant stimulus coming at you. You never know what the next video is going to be about. I can skip it immediately if I don't like it. It's just this constant hit of dopamine. And I have found myself watching a movie and the second it gets a a little bit boring, I'm reaching for my phone. Like, oh, I, what, what can I just scroll through and check? Because I just subtly, gradually feel this. I'm not feeling this dopamine, so it comes down, and then I got to do something. So being bored is, can be really dangerous because it actually can be really painful. Okay, So what happens is when our dopamine goes up, we crash, and it's kind of like buying something with a credit card. Right? I want it now, so I'm going to buy it now, and I'm going to pay interest on it. I'm going to actually end up paying more, but it comes at the benefit of I, I get it immediately. What I would suggest we do is flip this, and you can use it to your advantage. So dopamine, the pain and pleasure system are related. So if you can actually do the painful thing first, you can get all the benefits of dopamine without any of, uh, any of the crash. So it's not buying on credit, it's saving up and paying full price for it out of pocket so you don't have to stress about the, the extra money. So an example of this would be, um, I, 
I've been this person, but let's say I have a client I'm working with and they're really stressed about an upcoming assignment. They have a big end of semester project and so they procrastinate it and they put it off and they're really anxious. And as they're sitting there watching Netflix, they're not actually enjoying that time because the back of their mind, there's this energy going. There's this psychological energy that's always trying to combat this, this pressure of, um, I got to do this project, got to do this project. Um, but they don't, can't really let themselves sink into the actual doing of the project because that would make their dopamine crash and that doesn't feel good. So they just keep trying to distract, trying to avoid avoid themselves, trying to um, keep their mind busy. Maybe you've known people that are like, I always got to have the TV on. I don't, if I'm in my house, I got to have noise. Or I've known people that have the earbuds in their ear 24-7. Like if I don't, not listening to something, I'm just sitting, listening to my own thoughts and I can't tolerate that. I need to have constant stimulation. So what we find is that person is not actually relaxing. They're actually becoming more and more distressed. So they need more and more dopamine. If you flip it and make it work for you, if you were to do the project, you would, it would be difficult, but afterwards you would have this rush of relief and the dopamine would feel good. And then when you went and watched your show, it would feel awesome. It actually would be a healthy restorative experience because you've paid the price up front. An example of this that so we often see um, people who have a history of struggling with addiction, alcoholism, or drugs, as part of their recovery, they become triathletes or endurance runners, or marathon runners. And that's the exact same principle. If I go for a run, it's painful at first, and do I really love to run? No, but I get myself out there, I get going. And then after, I'm like, oh, I feel great. This is awesome, I did it. And then I have this, I've already paid the price, there's no dip, it's just this dopamine increase, and then a really slow, gradual taper over time. Uh, This is why we've seen an increase of people talk about polar plunges, If you know someone that does a polar plunge, they've probably already told you about it 800 times. And that's really what it's all about, is it's painful to get into that bucket. But we know dopamine shoots up somewhere between 200 to 300% of normal. A huge dopamine increase, and then a nice gradual decrease over time, and there's no crash. And it can last four or five hours. So the principle is when you are bored, don't buy on credit, pay cash up front, do the hard thing, whatever that is, do something difficult up front that maybe you don't want to do. Maybe it's do laundry. Maybe it's clean your room. Maybe it's exercise for 10 minutes. You don't, it doesn't matter, but if you can do that up front, actually will help you to settle in to rest and relaxation long-term. Being able to manage boredom is a skill that you need to practice. Absolutely. And no one ever tells you that. Um, That's why you have me. I'm here to tell you. Practice being bored. Here's some suggestions that I have for, for those who are struggling with this. So summer comes, you have this hole of six to eight hours of your day that you need to fill. What I suggest you do is to, rather than giving yourself all this extra free time, schedule out your day. So Monday through Friday, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., whatever mirrors how school was, schedule it out. So you have something at 9 a.m. That means I have to wake up, I have to shower, I have to get ready, and by 9 a.m., you don't have to get up at 6.30 like you used to have to with school. You can span that out a little bit, take it easy, but at 9 a.m., there's somewhere or something that you have to be doing. Okay, you can't just have free time all day, every day. Now, What the great part about this is you don't have to schedule algebra and calculus or history at 9 a.m. Schedule something fun. Schedule, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to play a musical instrument or I'm going to do whatever you would normally enjoy doing. I'm going to call a friend. We're going to go on a hike. We're going to go to the mall. I don't know what the activity doesn't really matter. What matters is that you schedule out a block of time that mirrors about the amount of time that you would stand, uh, spend in school. That is a really great way to minimize the risk of the school disruption. It gives you structure, it gives you schedule, it gives you an ability to sleep, it prevents you from having to just fill your time with screens all day. Um, and you can schedule in really fun, enjoyable things. Do what you want to do. Then at three o'clock when you're normally done with school, that's your free time. You do what you would normally do in the afternoons and um, and evenings. 
what I suggest is uh, for teens and parents, work together and think about how do you be thoughtful and intentional. Assess where am I at with my own mental health. If your mental health is struggling, you're going to need more structure, more security, a little tighter container, and your parents are going to have to help you with that. That's what you need. That's not a bad thing. It's not because you're punished or bad. No, that's what you need. Parents be able to provide it. As they're demonstrating that they're using these things effectively, they're scheduling their days, you can be only manage what they say, that, what they're not managing. Give as much freedom and opportunity as you can. But if we can apply some of these principles, focus on our sleep, focus on our screen time, being thoughtful, intentional, making a plan, sticking to it, and be intentional about how we deal with the boredom that's going to come up, um, those are three really great ways to help you to have an awesome, fulfilling, and enjoyable summer. And it will actually help you be more prepared for the fall because you'll be coming into the fall school year uh, mentally, emotionally healthy, recuperated, rested, patterns in, in line, your circadian rhythm's not thrown through the wall. You'll be st- ready and able to set yourself up for health and opportunity long-term. If you find yourself struggling, uh, maybe you're isolated, maybe there's these issues coming up, uh, summer's a great time to receive mental health services if that's what you need, even if it's not when you're at your highest crisis. Okay, the time for therapy is really when you're able to cope and really dig in and do the work. Therapy is kind of tough. So when you're in crisis, we can't do much other than manage your crisis. But when you're not in crisis, we can actually do a lot of work and, again, pay the price up front, do maybe the not-so-fun thing so that you can have a long-term rest and healing and relaxation. Those are our, th- our, our tips. Um, if you have comments, questions, please reach out uh, to us. But again, I'm Jake Sparks, Spark Treatment Director. This has been Roadmap to Joy. Everything you need to know about how to help you and your family have the best summer and be mentally and emotionally healthy. Thank you for watching.